Hi, and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Sarah Vaughan, and this is Start Somewhere for Marie Claire. And this week, I'm delighted to uh, be joined by one of the most amazing women um, I've ever met, and one of the most accomplished, Georgia Ellett-Smith, who is an environmental activist, an engineer, managing director of element for the sustainability consultancy and to top it all is the unesco special envoy for youth and the environment hi georgia how are you today? hi sarah i'm really well thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you oh it's so lovely to have you here with us and 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 i'm so excited about you kind of sharing your your story because I mean, you are, you are really quite that rare thing, which is a, a you know, a female uh, engineer. I was very lucky enough um, that my very dear friend actually at university and through school uh, was also an engineer. So I, I have a huge amount of, uh, of, 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 of kind of love and respect for anyone <laughs> who's got down the engineering track. Thank you. <laughs> and with that in mind, I, I would really, you know, love to invite you to share you know, how you really got started in life and how you caught the engineering bug? Um, well, I mean, I was quite uh, academic at school and, I, you know, I was quite lucky that I was able to, um, I love writing, I love books, I loved English and art. Um, but really, um, where I lit up was when I was in the CDT lessons, as we called, you know, craft design technology and making things. And I loved all that problem solving, uh, putting things together, doing electronics, building things, and um, really, really enjoyed that. And so I kind of feel like there, there were a number of things I enjoyed at school that I could have gone in different directions. But it was really my mum who um, set me on the path for engineering, because, you know, she said there are you know, if, if you're a woman and you're good at science and you're good at engineering, you should really go for it. You know, you can be a, a big fish in a small pond. You know, you're really going to stand out. And um, that kind really of set the tone. The mom, I think. <laughs> yeah, that, that sort of set the tone for the rest of my life, really. And and it was it was really, really good advice, but it was definitely a career that was suited to me, you know, and I, I have loved it. Although it has, it hasn't, been easy I would say you know coming out into um, industry in the 90s as a woman as a female engineer in construction was incredibly challenging you know and I really <laughs> I was really forged in fire in yeah, that sense. You, you, you weren't alone in any shape or form I oh God. <laughs> no I wasn't there, there was me and there was the secretary on site you know and then everybody would come to me to do their filing and I'd be like no hi I'm an engineer <laughs> so you know and it, and it was it's a, it's bizarre how you can be covered in a hard hat and layers and layers of protective equipment and fluorescent jackets and big boots and people will still wolf whistle at you or like <laughs> stop work as you walk past you know knowing that there's a woman underneath that I don't know how they know it's just <laughs> it's bizarre but also my mum who was um She's a writer, a journalist, and um, when I was young, became a PR consultant. Um, but she was always in property. So although she sort of kept her uh, PR work going, she always 
had a property project on the go. So I remember, <laughs> I remember most of my childhood was spent living in caravans on building <laughs> sites. <laughs> so I feel like I kind of have cement dust in my blood because, you know, like I say, even though her work was journalistic and PR based, it, we were always working on a, a property of some description. And I was always, you know, tramping around in big boots, you know, in big foundations being dug everywhere and brickies putting stuff together. So um, I kind of grew up around that. So I think that has given me a sense of comfort as well of being around the industry. Um, yeah. and, and your mum, I mean, she, I mean, you know, I've never met her. I'd love to meet her. She sounds absolutely <laughs> great, but she was quite the activist as well. She's a pretty forthright character. She really was. You know, she's always been a very strong feminist um, activist as well. She's been uh, very active in fighting for women's rights and female equality. And, um, and I mean, to the point when I was young, I used to, find it terribly embarrassing you know that she'd have arguments in the street with people about it and I, I remember her um getting into an argument with the receptionist at the doctors because you know the, the she said she'd written her down as like a miss or a missus and my you know she'd said no no my name is muzz and my daughters are all muzz and the receptionist said there's no such thing as muzz oh and I kind of like stepped back while this huge mushroom cloud blew up you know and I was like oh god why would you do that why would you say that um you know and she was she set that route for me about speaking up for what you believe in yeah and really setting an example for not being afraid to stand up for yourself and your beliefs and, um, and how, how amazing is that I mean I, I had a very forthright mother so I, I, I do know what you're <laughs> talking about and there are times I wanted to kind of disappear or slip away but I have to say I, I'm so grateful for having had that mm. and for somebody who really did champion causes in that way and really stood her ground actually and I think your mother sounds, sounds the same. And actually, you know, what extraordinary trailblazers and, 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 and they were and how brave and courageous to do that. Actually. Absolutely. Yeah, because I think it's not it's not a path for everybody. You know, if you're somebody who uh, you, you have to be somebody who's always ready to to have that and yeah it takes a lot of energy it takes a lot of energy you know to to stand up for what you believe in and and sometimes you just have to go you have to check out and go Do you know, I'm just going to let it slide because I haven't got the energy today but it's learning to choose your battles isn't it yeah yeah, yeah so there you are you're on a building site surrounded in mud you are uh-huh. the only uh, female construction <laughs> site other than the, the PA or <laughs> yeah. we've established how did you find your purpose there? I mean, this is really fascinating. To yeah, me. I've been on a really long journey with it. So um, I came out of university, uh, sort of sprang out of uni, you know, ponytail swinging. Like, I'm going to save the world, you know, and everyone wants to hear this message and it's going to be great. And um, obviously went into construction, big construction on big sites uh, with <laughs> big budgets, big pressures, you know, lots going on. And I got a right kick in, you know, realized very quickly that this young graduate and a woman, no less, you know, who was talking about uh, doing things differently, you know, it took a lot, a lot of um, 
fighting and, and courage really to to be able to bring that message and to start to make a change um but I felt like you know and I was always the unusual one because I was the only environment manager in the company in this major contractor I was the one of I'm, I'm not sure if I was the first but I was one of the first environment managers in the UK construction industry so it was wow. a completely new thing so I, I was in a very strange place but you know, I, and I was really proud of some of the changes that I was able to make. But equally, it's a very traditional industry and very, very slow to change. I mean, we still build things in the same way we built the pyramids. It's really crazy, you know, the way that construction has barely innovated over the years. You know, we're still pretty much building things in the same way. And so, it, you know, change in that sector is very slow and you have to make a lot of compromises. And um Unfortunately, I found that after working in that industry for many years, my expectations were lowered and I found myself going into new projects, new meetings and things already feeling compromised about what we'd be able to achieve mm -hmm. and my expectations were relatively low so I don't think I was being as challenging and as um visionary with with clients with teams as I could be because I was so I had this learned helplessness around what was going to be practical and what was going to be achievable and, mm -hmm. and it really it really dampened that fire in me so although I was still trying to make a positive change I'd, I'd sort of learned to toe the line a bit yeah um and I that that kind of carried on and I, I had a very you know I've had a very successful career for which I'm very grateful with some amazing employers and clients and, and a great journey but it was really last year um in 2000, early 2019 when the Extinction Rebellion uprising yeah. uh, the really big one in London took off yeah. and <laughs> That the week I remember the weekend that it it first kicked off. My sister was staying with me, and she said to me, "Oh, I'm really surprised you're not there." And I kind of looked at her and was like, "Yeah, do you know what? I am surprised I'm not there as well." So I mm -hmm. said to her, "Right, well, just entertain yourself. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm just gonna scooch off on into London and see what's going on." I love it. So um, I did, and I went with my ten-year-old son. And we just got the tube into central London and went to Oxford Circus where the, the big pink boat was parked up. Yeah. And just came out and wandered about and, and got involved. And, and from that moment, I mean, it was incredible, that experience, because as soon as I walked out into the street from the tube station and got chatting to people, everyone was so welcoming. They were so lovely. There were so many different people from different walks of life and you know, it was such a, a beautiful tapestry of people and such a lovely feeling. Somebody came up and offered me a plate of vegan chili, just totally out of nowhere. You know, there were these people who were offering free food and it was just gorgeous. I loved it. And we, within about an hour, we, me and my son both had drums and we were leading a march. <laughs> and we were swarming roads in Camden Town with banners. I mean, it just all kind of went off, you know, and, and it was amazing. And I, on that day, I feel like I had a kind of reawakening and I really got back in touch with my purpose, yes. um, which I'd needed. You know, I was, I was like, um, I was parched. I was thirsty for it. You know, I needed, mm -hmm. I had the couple of weeks before that had been quite uh, emotional 
have been on a bit of a roller coaster. So it felt like that it came at the right time. And and really, so what did you do then? How did that impact <laughs> your life? <laughs> this extraordinary yeah, moment. Well, this has gone on. So I suppose I'll, I'll kind of go back to the the few weeks before that happened because. It was, um, it's probably more than a few weeks now, you know, my memory of it's a bit sketchy. It's all kind of turned into this big, amazing thing now. But, um, you know, given my qualifications, I did an environmental engineering degree. I'd obviously had all of this experience in industry. I'd gone through the journey I've described about being quite, um, of becoming quite corporate, of becoming quite disillusioned and, and just accepting business as usual. And then the IPCC report came out um, and, you know, with the, the, this benchmark that we were 12 years away from our, this catastrophic tipping points mm-hmm. in, in climate change and, and the Amazon, you know, all the reports about the Amazon being on fire and, and just various other things were happening. And I went through this period of it's kind of this... Um, I talk about it like I had these long, dark nights of the soul, you know, where I just couldn't sleep. And I was sitting up, was pacing the house. I was writing like fury, you know, just writing, writing, writing about my grief about what was going on in the world and how I felt I'd lost my way with what I was doing. And this feeling like there's always a sense that somebody will save us, you know, and I think that's also quite a westernized feeling about we live such a costed existence and there's always a feeling that it'll be okay. And, you know, no matter what happens, I'll be able to work. Yeah. Yeah. Wonder Woman will will come and save. Exactly. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. You know, and you get caught up in the day to day and, and then sort of looking, opening up my eyes and looking around and thinking, nobody's coming to save us. Like all these politicians, they're just, vested interests and they don't get it and they're lawyers and accountants and school teachers and they're not experts in this stuff and who is coming to save us and I thought with my experience and my knowledge and my education and my networks and all, all the things that I had at my disposal if I can't step up and be part of the solution then what on earth do I expect from other people you know so that was the sort of lead up and then I I then obviously discovered XR and became then fully out as an activist you know I kind of stepped up and did that so since then um I have been on an incredible journey I've been very active with Extinction Rebellion and attending lots of marches and in particular uh became part of a, a, a group locally um fighting an incinerator in my neighborhood a waste incinerator so that's in Edmonton in North London and this is a 1.2 billion pound project to expand an existing incinerator in one of the most densely populated deprived um ethnically diverse neighborhoods in London and it is just wrong on so many levels it's wrong and I started to so through my work in construction industry I knew a lot about waste management yeah But, but you know you kind of you believe don't you from school that incineration is a good thing and actually it's kind of like recycling you're taking waste and you're producing energy and 
you know, and nothing comes out except unicorn farts. And so we're all kind of everything's good with the world. It's, yeah. it's and, solving and, two problems. And by the way, you know, the Norwegians and the Swedes who are very sustainable do incinerate their rubbish, right? So, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a broad brush statement that you always hear to justify incineration. But the reality of that, when you look into the numbers, is they incinerate a tiny amount of waste. And 50% of that is imported from other countries because they've been so successful with waste reduction and recycling initiatives that actually the problem with an incinerator is once you build the monster, you have to feed it. And so they have these incinerators. They were early adopters of the technology mm -hmm. back in the day when it was a, a great alternative to landfill. They were early adopters. They built these things and they last for 50 years, these multi-billion pound investments. So you have to keep feeding them until the end of their life. Um, so they're now coming to the end of the, all of this incineration. There are a couple that, you know, that are still being built, but there's massive movement in Europe now around the new science and understanding of incineration and particularly its impact not just locally. I mean, like I say, there are many, many reasons why I'm against incineration. But what we don't talk about a lot is the climate impact of incineration. Because when you take a piece of plastic, any piece of plastic, you know, that unfortunately, that's a lost opportunity to keep oil in the ground. But mm -hmm. once it is made into plastic, it then represents a piece of solid carbon, a piece of stored solid carbon. The minute you burn that, you turn it instantly into atmospheric carbon. And so we really have a duty in the climate emergency to keep that plastic in circulation, you know, recycling it, reusing it, keeping it inside the economy and not burning it. There isn't, you know, there's no technology available to us today that can capture the carbon from incineration. There have been trials of varying success, but it's just not a technology that's available. So we have to stop incinerating our plastic. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, it would be good to hear from you a little bit also about the health implications and what happens in these areas where yeah. there are incinerators and also have a few statistics for our listeners on, you know, what, what, what you know, the carbon emissions look like and, and how much incineration is adding to climate change. Yeah, wow. So there are some really frightening statistics. You know, we're, um, I'm talking to you here from the UK and uh, at the moment we have 48 um, municipal waste, so household waste incinerators operating in the UK. Now one of the greenwash angles that incinerator operators use is they say this is residual waste, this is the stuff that can't be recycled. That's not true, that's fundamentally not true. About 60% of what goes into an incinerator is fully recyclable um, or compostable. And what happens is the waste that is collected in our mixed waste bins, so not our recycling bins, mm -hmm. just gets picked up by a truck and taken straight to the incinerator and turfed into the into the furnace without any pre-sorting. And obviously, you know, the situation is different in different countries, but um, what's universal is that the proportion of recyclable plastic packaging fabrics that sort of stuff in our waste is going up so more and more of our waste is plastic and that stuff can be recycled um so carbon emissions i mean we're talking about in the uk from those 48 current incinerators is over six and a half million tons of carbon so and that's just from burning plastic and to give you a sense of scale because six and a half millions are coming what does that mean that is the same as the emissions from the whole of manchester and birmingham put together every year so that's two major cities in the uk and that's all of their transport housing industry everything just from these waste incinerators that's the equivalent 
And if we look at a Europe-wide scale, there are 500 operational incinerators in Europe, in the European Union, and they emit the same amount of carbon dioxide as the whole of Portugal, just from those incinerators. And that carbon is just the carbon from burning plastics, nothing else. So you kind of start to get a sense of the scale of the problem. And what we're finding is that um, in the reason that incineration has really taken off globally. Well, actually, let's talk about Western developed nations first, because there's a different problem with developing countries. So the problem in the Western nations is that because incineration isn't taxed, um, we find that it's kind of the next option when the landfill tax came in, that displaced a huge amount of waste from landfill up the chain into incineration. Um, so landfill tax has been an incredibly effective mechanism to, to get rid of waste from that. Mm -hmm. But it simply just displaced everything into incineration. And incineration isn't taxed either as a waste disposal route or as an energy generation route. Mm -hmm. So there is such a thing as a carbon tax, and that is applied to power stations that burn fossil fuels like coal and gas because they produce huge amounts of carbon dioxide. Well, these incinerators that are burning plastic, which is much, much dirtier than burning coal or gas, they don't have to pay a carbon tax. And that is what my legal challenge is about. So I've obviously told you about my legal challenge before and that's why I'm in, stuck in. And, in and, and, and effectively, you, you've taken this on yourself. So I'd, I'd love for you to explain to everybody what, what you're actually, you know, doing and handling and have taken on personally. <laughs> yeah. So it's me. It's, yeah, it's quite, when I saw the paperwork, immediately it kind of hit home what I'd done. You know, the paperwork that my legal team sent me for me to check over inside was uh, the Queen um, on the application of Georgia Elliott Smith versus the Secretary of State, you know, for the UK the, and the devolved administration. So it's like Georgia Elliott Smith versus the Secretary of State for the UK government and the ministers for Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland on this front sheet. And I went, oh, <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> it's just crazy. Um, so what I, what I have done is that um, in fighting this local incinerator for many reasons, not just the carbon reason, but also the, but also the health reason, isn't there? And, and I'd love you to touch on that, Georgia, actually, just yeah. about what the health implications are, what the data is showing about living close yeah. to the incineration. Yeah. So um, the, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the legal action in a moment then, because I think this is a really important thing. There, there are lots of factors in incineration that make it a terrible idea. Um, I've talked about the carbon. There's also the local air pollution and the fact that uh, what comes out of the chimney of an incinerator is incredibly toxic. So when you burn all of this mixed waste, you create a huge cocktail of pollutants. And the current technology that we have, even the most modern technology that has been created in the last couple of years, is not capable of removing all of the pollutants. And we know when we look at the real operational data from a, a, a live active incinerator, that they frequently don't operate at their optimum conditions. So they break down regularly, the filters are not working a lot of the time, um, and the filters themselves are not necessarily that efficient. So what comes out of an incinerator 
some of the most worrying stuff that comes out is particulates. So like ultra fine particulate matter. And this comes out, it's hugely toxic material like dioxins. So dioxins, furans are some of the most toxic chemicals known to man. And they come out in ultra fine particulates from these incinerators into the local area. We can inhale those, can't we? We breathe them in and they are so uh, fine, they are able to cross over the blood brain barrier they cross into the bloodstream and they then lodge in our bodies. And these are carcinogenic, they, con they contribute to strokes, to heart disease, uh, autism, um, all kinds of uh, problems, respiratory problems, inflammatory conditions. And we are really only just starting to understand the impact of these pollutants on the human body. And there are some incredible studies. There's some studies that were done in the Netherlands around a very modern incinerator there. And they found that chicken's eggs from a farm near to an incinerator were so heavily polluted with dioxins that they were unfit for human consumption. Oh and yet these incinerators, are, and that's a study that's now being rolled out through numerous countries in Europe, and the data should be with us fairly soon. But, you know, the... It's so worrying because once these things, these multi-billion pound investments are built, they then remain pouring this pollution out for decades. You know, it's not something that we can just switch off. They become a stranded asset then, you know, and which government is going to shut down billions of pounds worth of investment? Well, hopefully the UK one, if you have your way. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd love to go back to what it is you're actually fighting for and, and, and what, 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 what the legal action is, Georgia. Yeah, so I'm part of, um, as I say, part of Extinction Rebellion um, and part of another local campaigning group, Stop the Edmonton Incinerator. So we're campaigning to try and uh, pause and review this mega incinerator that's being built in London. And that is ups and downs I mean goodness me that's a crazy journey with some incredibly passionate campaigners who are just amazing um all doing this work in their spare time and trying to fit around families and life and it's just amazing it's so inspiring and then the legal action came because I, I took the decision to take legal action against the UK government because what I'd experienced with my local campaigning is that our local MP Sadly, in my constituency, which is the, the incinerator straddles a couple of uh, constituencies, my MP formerly was on the board of the waste authority that is running this incinerator. And so she is not listening. She's completely vested in this project. And our local council don't want to listen. You know, the subject is technical. It's complicated. They just want to get on with building it. And so I was finding myself just being brushed away. Meetings were being cancelled. You know, letters were just being, I was getting stock answers back from people and we just weren't getting anywhere. So I started talking to a legal team, um, which in itself is a long story that I won't go into, but I, I found a legal team who, they are amazing. They're the same legal team that recently, at the beginning of 2021, the challenge against the Heathrow expansion on behalf of Friends of the Earth. So they're absolute kick-ass, brilliant team. Um, I'm so lucky to be working with them. And we uh, decided that, and, and I had seen from my work locally, that these incinerators are just doing what the law and the policy from government 
enables them to do and in fact encourages them to do so there's n- fighting the local incinerator is is always going to be you know pushing a boulder up a hill yeah. whereas if if we try to tackle the central policies and strategies that allow these horrible dirty technologies to proliferate then we switch off the tap you know and we're just dealing with it centrally and hopefully then it makes it easier to prevent these things from being built so on the 1st of June a policy was released because one of the silver linings of Brexit of which there are (laughs) very very few but one of the silver linings for me is that the UK government has to rewrite a whole load of environmental regulations Mm -hmm. um, which were previously managed through Europe so one of them is about how we tax carbon because we were as the UK industry was previously part of European taxation uh, the carbon emissions trading scheme it's called and the UK government kicked its heels for two and a half years and did nothing about it and then on the 1st of June released this awful strategy for a a new UK emissions trading scheme Um, and it specifically omits waste incineration so it includes aviation manufacturing power generation but it it doesn't include waste incineration and as i said the statistics earlier are really shocking about how much carbon these facilities are emitting and so it was absolutely clear to me and my legal team that by leaving waste incineration out of this taxation scheme um, we are in contravention of the paris agreement which is the international accord that commits us to reducing CO2 emissions as quickly as possible, and especially in developing nations to do it more quickly. And am I right also, Georgia, in thinking that the UK government has a lot of plans to actually build more of them currently? Oh my goodness, we are in the middle of this boom of incinerator building. the number of incinerators will double. Uh, the capacity of incineration in the UK is going to double over the next few years. It's really frightening. And the result of that is that recycling rates across the UK have actually fallen. For the last three years, we've seen recycling reduce because the problem, the, the it's all about the economics. And this, again, is what I realized when I was fighting locally, mm-hmm. is we were trying to appeal to these authorities to do the right thing. But we were fighting the economics of it. And the economics are that because incineration pays no tax, because the operators get paid by the council and by industry to take their waste, so essentially they're getting paid for receiving fuel, And then they're in receipt of loads of grants, benefits, uh, taxation relief uh, as operators themselves. Uh, Plus also they can then sell the resulting energy to the grid. It's just profit, profit, profit. These operators are making so much money. And as a result, they can then undercut recycling operators. And it means that they can charge councils and businesses a lot less to send their waste to incineration than you would have to pay to send your waste to recycling. And therefore, it's a complete blocker to the circular economy. And all I could see was that government was just enabling this from happening and they weren't putting any blockers in the way of incineration just decimating waste reduction and recycling. So my hope through this action is that what we can do is if we start to tax incinerators for the pollution that they create, that then creates a more difficult business case for them to operate. And there's also a very, um, there's a very 
fair one, right? Because I mean, ultimately, they're not actually paying for the full cost of their impact. No, they're not. You then know? there's so many impacts. Yeah, and, and I mean, even if you get your way, I mean, that's still some of the environmental impact, not the health impact. And of I mean, course. This is potentially the kind of the new tobacco and new smoking, but on a huge, even bigger scale because of the, you know, really still kind of, you know, we're just finding out about the human health aspects yeah. of it. But, yeah. you know, I, I'm also very aware that, you know, London, you know, kind of, blows through its pollution air pollution targets in kind of January or something I mean it's it's already so I mean dear god you know with 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 extra incinerators over the whole city what what (laughs) well we know because a report came out from the GLA the Greater London Authority um a couple of weeks ago so fresh off the press reporting that they have discovered that 15 deaths a year in London are attributable to, directly attributable to the waste incinerators in the capital alone. So that's that's what they know about the health impacts of incineration, their deaths. That's not even health impacted. So all of those children who are suffering with asthma, you know, all of these adults who are suffering with chronic health conditions, and especially at the time of COVID, it is so important that we start to take action on air pollution because, again, the science during the COVID pandemic has shown us that air pollution is a critical factor in whether or not people are catching and dying from COVID. So if you live in a more polluted area, then you are far more likely to die of COVID if you contract it. So we, we have to really start taking these issues seriously. And I think people are starting to realise it. The problem is the urgency. And I think, the, you know, I really want people to realise that once these incinerators get planning consent, they get built and they operate for 50 years. So I will probably be dead and buried by the time the new Edmonton incinerator is decommissioned, you know, and, and so throughout the rest of my life and most of my child's life, you know, my, my son is 10, my daughter is eight. They are going to be, most of their lives will be spent under the cloud of this incinerator. So it doesn't even matter how many electric cars we've got, how much the rest of industry reduces its pollution. This facility, once it's built, will keep pouring this out. So it's so... I, Part of my mission now, my big mission is I just want people to think about this, to think about waste and to start contacting their MPs. You don't need to know a lot about it. And I feel for people when I start (laughs) bombarding them with all this information because it's really technical. And once you start scratching the surface, it gets technical very quickly. But you don't need to know a lot about it. You just need to ask the people who should know questions about it and expose the fact that they don't know and there are so many links now to this new science that we can I I, on social media I share these reports widely that are coming out now about air pollution about incineration about low carbon solutions about circularity and I just say to people go online get the email of your MP and your local councillors they're readily available online attach this report and just say to them did you know what are you doing about it? You know, and, and the thing is, the more, the more that they get that 
type of message, the more that they will have to educate themselves about it. And don't assume the people in power know this yeah, stuff. Because, I, yeah. I, I, it, I think that's absolutely classic. And, and, and thank you, by the way, for also jumping the gun on what, on what the big ask to everyone is. <laughs> I'm super eager. So passionate, but it's just fantastic. And I think that's some great advice. I mean, the people in power, or supposedly we we feel are in power, don't always know. I mean, that they don't have the full facts. You know, they, you know, for them, incineration is a very neat solution to to the problem of waste. And yeah. and now that they can't export waste <laughs> to a lot of the developing world, um, they've got a problem about what to do with it. But incineration is, of course, not not the solution it's not the answer you know and and georgia you know how can people follow you and and your action do you want to give out your 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 social tax so that so they can do that so people can contact me either uh, via Twitter. My uh, name there is at Georgia ES. I'm also really active on LinkedIn. So Georgia Elliot hyphen Smith on LinkedIn. Um, and I've got a, a website, polluterspay.earth. And that's where I post information about the, um, the legal case and lots of other related campaigns around uh, polluters pay. Uh, if they want to, anybody can go to my crowd justice uh, funding page as well to help me raise funds for the legal case. So that's at crowdjustice.com and the page is called Make Incineration Polluters Pay. Georgia, thank you to you for all you're doing and, and for the extraordinary courage and for really kind of putting your head above the parapet. I mean, you so embody kind of start somewhere. It's, it's just, uh, you know, it's astonishing. And, 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 you know, I wish you nothing but 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 the best and, and enormous success with your campaign. And, and you know, you and I will keep checking in because I'm a huge fan and supporter of what you're doing. So thank you, really thank you, because, you know, these are the issues that need to be surfaced and people you know, need to find out about them. And, and, and otherwise we don't know. And, and then we have some extraordinary kind of health horror story, you know, um, and, you know, 50 years down the track, you know, so, mm. so thank you for all you're doing. Oh, my pleasure. Thank um, you for having me. And, uh, and thank you to all our listeners um, for, for, for being with us this week. So thank you, Georgia. Take care. Bye bye. Pleasure.